0: Hi, I'm your host, Connor Byrne, and welcome back to That's What I Call Marketing, the podcast where you will hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique stories. Today I'm joined by Jan Gooding. Jan is one of the UK's best known brand marketers. She began her career in retail on a Selfridges-run management training course. In the 1980s, she joined the agency Burkitt Weinrich Bryant as an account director and went on to sit on the board of the agency. In 1997, for reasons we get into, she started her own business called Blue Door, moving client side in the early 2000s at BT as Head of Brand Experience, Head of Strategic Communications. In 2008, she was Inter-Marketing Director at British Gas. Now, later that year, she moved to Aviva, where she held roles like Group Brand Director, Marketing Operations Director and Global Inclusion Director. She's now an executive coach, and in 2019, she was recognized at the Drum Marketing Awards with a lifetime achievement honor, and it was an honor for me to meet and spend time with Jan. And Actually, we spent well over the agreed time, and so to do it justice, I'm splitting this episode with Jan into an unexpected but truly brilliant two-parter. In part one, we will talk about the agency world, the challenges facing it now, how we could and should be thinking about the agency billing model. And without discounting some of the good things the pandemic accelerated, we discussed the importance of us getting back out into the world and the need for us as marketers to observe and interact with people. So I hope you enjoy part one of this episode with the brilliant Jan Gooding. Jan, thanks a million for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing.
1: Well, hello. It's lovely to to be invited.
0: Well, listen, I, I've let everybody know about your, your amazing career. And I think one of the things that struck me when you know, I was kind of reading, reading more about you was maybe you fell into advertising and marketing in a way. You had a job in Selfridges and then you kind of discovered advertising. I'd love to hear a bit about that.
1: Yes, that's right. Well, I, I read economics at university at a time when it was very unusual for women to read economics, um, the ratio of men to women was extraordinarily high in favour of men. And actually choosing a career following that meant you you were being attracted into the industries that were also extremely sexist and male-dominated, tending to be um, in the city and even pure economics jobs, uh, very much favouring men. So I thought I would try... Merchant banking, as it was called, I think it's it's uh, it's now called um, they're called investment banks, aren't they? Merchant banks became unfashionable (laughs) and was unsuccessful at that. And to be honest, as I went to all these interviews in the city, I just thought this isn't really me. I mean, you could just feel it was full of suited men and very weird. I was uncomfortable. So I so I decided to go into retail. At Selfridges. I wanted to be involved in business in some way. Um, But I absolutely hated it. I can't (laughs) see how miserable. I'm sorry if anyone on here works at Selfridges, but I was not a born retailer. And I I couldn't stand the achingly long periods of time. No customer would come in. It was just so incredibly boring. Uh, I was on their graduate scheme, and there was a, a man who spent his weekend working out how he was going to re-merchandise the umbrella department and I just couldn't get my head around the fact that he'd spent his weekend doing that I couldn't think of anything worse so I knew I was in the wrong dream but to (laughs) my excitement as part of the graduate scheme I was placed for two weeks in their in-house advertising department which at the time was being disbanded because they had decided to point an external agency. So I was incredibly lucky. There were these wonderful copywriters and art directors putting together their own books to find jobs who showed me the guard books of the previous hundred years, pretty much, of Selfridges advertising. Oh, wow. And they explained to me by me looking at the old ads, how the strategy for Selfridges had changed over time, how at the beginning, Gordon Selfridge had always been about positioning the store, almost like an emporium. You know, he was a great entertainer. And then I saw the fashion buyers became dominant. The advertising was all about fashion. And then it would go back again to the amazing Selfridge's experience. And I thought, gosh, it's fascinating. I had no idea that somebody had to have a point of view about positioning the brand and that there were possibly – half a dozen different strategies that you could have. It has never occurred to me. Wow. So that's when I thought, this is what I want to do. This is really interesting. I love the creativity of it. And so I managed to get a job working at Ted Bates, a, an American uh, advertising group. In fact, Mad Men is based on them. So, oh. that was, so I made a lucky break into another sexist, misogynistic <laughs> organization. That's another story. But at least I'd found the topic that excited me.
0: That's fascinating. Just kind of to, I guess that like the curiosity you would have had, and you know, then it just sparked something in you. Were you had you creativity when you were younger? Because I mean, I, I, I going into economics seems like a very maybe different, or maybe economics is creative. <laughs> but going into that, like when you were you know in school, that was creativity part of?
1: I'd done it. I'd done an art um, O level, as we call them okay. then GCSEs, and I had done. My A levels were English history and economics. So economics was just my my best subject, but I had, you know, I very much enjoyed the arts. And I guess what I liked, I I, w- I was inclined towards macroeconomic uh, right. strategy. So I like the big picture. And the thing about economics is, it's all about trying to understand the dynamic effects of the economy. So one of the, I'm very much a Keynesian, and one of the things I love about Keynesian uh, thinking was he was the person who observed that people's behaviour is driven by what they imagine is going to happen, their beliefs. So he was the first person that challenged this idea of markets acting in this very pure and rational way, and actually explained that expectations play. Expectations was his language play a huge role actually in driving people's behavior in the economy. And so I found the way in which you could transfer that kind of econometric thinking to marketing and uh, the business of what, what makes customers think the way they do what makes them behave the way they do and how advertising and other marketing interventions can influence behavior for me it was just a really natural um natural bedfellow so the creativity came from what is the intervention yeah and the and the insight of do you understand what's happening and why people think and do what they do that will cause your intervention to be powerful has been a lifelong very very enjoyable enterprise to be involved in.
0: <laughs> yeah that, that is it, it's incredible and in I guess that you worked in agencies and you you had the probably the opportunity then to really you know speak to potential customers of the brands you were going to work with and really dig into what what people were thinking, you know, those expectations might be and, and then bring that to life um, within within the agency, which is fascinating.
1: Well, of course, I was very lucky because I was properly schooled in marketing at a time when agencies were, as they were called, full service. Yes. So when I went into advertising, you know, media was part of it. It was above and below the line. We had our own studios. the The advertising agency was the marketing partner, of uh, their businesses they were like they were much more like the marketing department of their clients than they were just doing the ads and so what was brilliant for me was I was properly schooled I now realize because when I talk to young people now the the industry has become so fragmented people are very narrow discipline experts in a way that I find, Concerning, I, felt, I, I mean, A, it's less interesting for everybody um, in terms of the, the jobs that they do. But it also means people are less schooled in understanding, well, how does my bit connect to, you know, what other people are doing? So because it was a full service agency, when we used to work on pictures or when I was put on a brand, the first thing that we would do would be like mystery shopping and yeah. experiencing the brand. So, so. We we actually thought we were supposed to have a point of view about the packaging and the pricing and what was going on in store and what was the nature of the service. This was all a natural. We, we were absolutely expect to understand and represent the media strategy. And and we were we were expected to really understand the client's business because we couldn't advise them on their marketing as a whole unless we understood what they were trying to do as a business. So I look back on it feeling incredibly fortunate that um I was so well schooled in such a well rounded way. I mean this is this is this is the time when agencies used to come up with products and propositions. You know yeah. you were expected to do that. So when you hear Jeremy Bullmore talking about Mr Kipling cakes and the the brief was we've got rather a lot of flour. Do you have any ideas about what we could do with it? And he invented the little Kipling, you know, cakes and and the insight was that the cherry was put on by hand at random, so it didn't look machine made. It yeah. had a sort of little the little quirkiness of of not being completely uniform. You know, that's what ag- agencies were expected to solve business problems like that, and we're a long way from that. So. Of so, of course, my career has witnessed that change. And I think it's one of the reasons that I was so attracted in the end to go and work in the big corporates that I did in my career to get back upstream yeah. <laughs> in those conversations, which I could see were no longer happening either in the media or the creative agencies or the PR agencies or, you know, whatever the fragmented bit of the, the landscape.
0: It, it, and I completely, like, it is really... Fragmented. I think one of the things you, you touched on there is understanding the client's business. You know that agencies were expected to understand the client's business, and and having worked in agencies, and again a f- fragmented part of an agency picture that a client was working with, uh, one of the things I often struggled with was understanding the client's business. And the best clients you got to work with were the ones that helped you understand the client's business. And and I guess when you when you moved from the agency world to, to the client world were you were you taking part of that with you and saying like there's if i don't do this if i don't help them understand my business they're never going to be a good agency partner
1: well the thing about me is my my journey didn't go quite from agency life to client life i was very lucky that i had this almost a decade in the middle where i became a consultant so i was running my own business um and in fact it was one of my clients bt who first said how would you like to to cross over so there was a there was a gradual move from agency to client side with yeah. running my own business um bridging it but certainly when i was on the client side i used to put an enormous amount of effort into making sure that my agency partners had proper access um and opportunity to understand Uh, my business and in fact I remember when we did the create you know you can't take the ad woman out of me and then I'd learned about what did it feel like receiving a brief so when when the one time when I did run a global creative pitch we put enormous effort not only into the pitch document but the pitching process itself Um, I remember we you know we went to a special venue we made special films It was, you know, face to face. Even then people were less and less inclined to kind of come to meetings because I wanted to excite all the agencies about the business that Aviva was in and what we were trying to do for the brand. That was quite an unfashionable thing to do by then. Um, But I know it came from the fact that I had been schooled being the other side of the the fence, but my experience was that um, in all of the agencies I worked with when I was client side, there would be one or two people in each of my service providers, for want of a better word, my agencies, who I really connected with. Okay, often, often the planner um, uh, and and somebody in the client service side. And for me, there were well, there were one or two really really critical people uh, that I wanted working on my business that I wanted in the meetings with me. Of course, I was very senior um, by then. I was that awful person that could turn up and say no to things. <laughs> uh, I tried to make myself available, but what I know, looking back on it, was they were the people that I spotted, understood the business context. And were not simply driven by uh, selling to me what the agency had to sell, and and I think the planning discipline, that strategic thinking, is enormously important, and I think generally undervalued both yeah. by agencies and clients. You know, the real thinkers, because they are the ones who will go on an inquiry and find those little nuggets of opportunity where there's a group of people you've not been addressing you know your pricing has gone out of kilter obviously with insurance that was different because yeah. the actuaries did the pricing not the not the marketing people uh so that was unusual but there could be other aspects of your business that they would that they would spot and the creativity is as much in the strategic thinking as it is in the execution
0: yeah and I, yeah, for the creative team to be able to get to good work, like that piece has to be done. And I, I think what somebody had said to me, um, they're based in the States and, and their ex agency world of kind of recent past. And they said it's got to the point now that for agencies, the client relationship is as bad as being down to not the last campaign they did, but the last meeting they had. So it's beco- it becoming very transactional and how. And that's I think because there's a lot of pressure on CMOs as well, right? Like the landscape has changed in that in that sense as well. But I think how can you get to good work if you don't have give people that opportunity, and the time to, as you say, dig into the strategy, think about the planning, get to the insight, and then kind of get to that point of creating great work? Do you think there's a do you think there's an opportunity I there for somebody to go and say actually the way we used to do it kind of worked, like you know, and create that full service agency, or is that long? gone. Uh,
1: I, 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 I can't comment, really, because it's such a complex landscape now with holding companies, owning lots and lots of um, components. I think it's quite a difficult thing to put back together. Yeah. What concerns me is that I think agencies are being far too driven by margin, profitability and the bonuses of the senior people in them and they've and they've lost sight of their own sense of value and what the client values and constructing the way in which they work so it works for them and for the for the client i tried when i was a client to very much encourage my different agency i was very loyal to i wasn't i was somebody who did not like the procurement the procurement par- department would have loved us to run a media pitch every year just using an Excel spreadsheet. Right. Um, because I came from the, back, the background that I had was agency side, I really understood the value of longer-term relationships yeah. and actually making adjustments to the people, you know, where things weren't working and also encouraging my different agencies to work together. So I would very much try to convene meetings where my media agency, my PR people, my creative agency, whoever was in the ecosystem, type, were in the same room. Yeah. But what was interesting was that I was I was the lead. It was a bit like when I was a board account director, orchestrating the different disciplines in my agency. Um, that was what I was doing. For, so so as a client, you were the one that had to take on the responsibility for getting the multidisciplined advisors that you had to work together, and that was perfectly possible to do. But but their own business models made it hard for them to do because I think they were always they were always suspicious of each other, Yes. To encroach into each other's um, spaces. I, th- I suspect their bosses were constantly driving them to grow and extend their share of my business, as it were. All of which is is fair enough, but it gets in the way of good relationships. So I, I don't think agencies are consistent. They talk a lot about how important relationships are, how they want to understand the client's business, how fascinated they are with solving the problems creatively. But their own business models, I think, get in the way of them delivering against that. And I think if I was running an agency, I would want to have a big old think about the remuneration system that I had within my own agency that I I I hope they have some control of. I mean I mean what I'm told about the extent of intervention that is made by holding companies into you know it must be pretty miserable for CEOs or MDs. They're trying to run an agency. You can't do that if someone is in the back seat driving for you. But I think there's some cases to be made for rethinking the The retention of people in the middle, the pay of people in the mm-hmm. middle, reducing these ridiculous bonuses that the senior people get and protect and try to think, how can we make our own remuneration system work so that we've got the right incentives to invest the time that it takes working on a client business and really understanding it? because it's all become about units of time. Yes. So the effort to meet in person the effort so for me when i was a youngster going off doing a whole load of store checks driving around the country so i didn't just do the ones that were nearest to me in london coming back writing a report about it giving a interesting presentation to the client about what i discovered that would all now be seen as a waste of time
0: because well, you, you know, can't you can't bill it yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah exactly yeah. So, something's got ro- something's very, very wrong, not just in how agencies are remunerated, but how agencies remunerate their own staff and how they think about what is in what is worth investing in.
0: Yeah. it And um, again, I remember in agencies, where you know, the have you done your hours? Have you done your hours? You, you know, and people were then. And what people were doing, and and I would imagine it's still the same, people were going, Oh, well, I was on a call to this client for five minutes. I'll put that down as half an hour. And and then when somebody runs a report on the hours you're doing against that client's account, and you know, then we have a conversation with the client going, Well, we're investing for you know more than we said we would on client hours, we're gonna have to come after you for more money. Clients in there going, What? Like (laughs) like what's this about? Or, you know, things showing up that they, you know and I did see it once somebody was trying to charge a client because the client wanted to have a meeting in their office, which was two hours away. It's like no like that's a meeting. <laughs> you know like it's I, I, I do i I do think a lot of people talk about it. That model is is damaging to that relationship, and I don't know if anyone's found a way to fix it, and it comes from a different world as well. I think it you know it doesn't necessarily fit with um with what you're trying to do, which is relationships. I think like billing hours comes from maybe the legal world, right? Like I think about lawyers and they don't want relationships, right? They're getting get out. I don't know what other relationship industry works that way. I anyway. know.:
1: Well consul- well, consultancies do. Um, and I think it's about for me, it's all about what is the discretionary effort that we're all willing to make. And clients have got to do it too and i think the pandemic has worsened and made us our relationships and our and our willingness to make discretionary effort even more corrupted so my big thing at the moment is it's i'm putting a lot of effort into face to face meetings which costs me because i all the travel time is yeah. now in my diary that used to be Thankfully, because of Zoom, you know, I could do wall to wall meetings and coaching sessions. But the way I have thought about it, this is not scientific, is my belief is the effort that I make to meet people face to face. And the journey that I have on the way to all of those meetings will all pay off. Yeah. And so far, I can tell you that my business is growing um it's you know with me with me making this effort over how i interact and i know it goes back to how i was schooled that first 10 years working in full service agencies where the relationship was considered important and you just instinctively felt it was important to be out in the world because that was part of marketing so observing just the journey to somewhere that everything you did in the real world at some point was going to be useful. You didn't know how it was, but you were going to get, even feeling the seasons change, Mm. um, what you how you know, I can remember earlier in the year going into a meeting and suddenly feeling, oh, tourists are back. I can feel that people are visiting London again. Now, that has not been specifically useful to me, but it's about... As marketeers, we have to be out in the world, observing, feeling and experiencing the world. Otherwise, we cannot act as advisors on marketing and be instinctive about where people are. You have to look at the boarded up high streets. You have to experience the city being empty. You have to feel restaurants being full or not or the lights being dimmed. Um, so we can't have small lives as marketers and we have to meet, I think, our clients face to face. And if we do that, I believe you get rewarded by doing more interesting work, having a more interesting time. And you've got to find a business model that makes it makes it worth doing.
0: Yes. Yeah. And it's a deeper Engagement, you know, like, like anything, you know, human interaction, you know, we're over Zoom here today and it's wonderful. But, you know, if we were, if we'd met for coffee before this and sat in a room, you know, it just is a very different, different type of, of engagement that you can have with someone and it's richer. And I think, yeah, there's, we have, we have to get back to it. And I agree with you also the point about living and experiencing the world, not just our world. I think as marketers, that's so important, you know. And we can pretend we often live in a bubble, right? And I think that is something that probably the creative industry and and marketing, um, in, in some ways, would maybe concern me as well as that we 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 don't. Is there enough diversity in marketing and in create the creative world?
1: Well, and I and I I have written an article just recently. Um, for the media leader where i'm talking about the fact that we're not learning and we're not going to be progressing in our careers in the way that we used to because we're not together we have we have just seen uh the wound on our children and students of the work you know studying remotely so in theory you can just read books do your tutorials online sit at home and learn but we all know that it's been a disaster. That that actually physically being together in a classroom, going to university, all the conversations that happen in the margins and also the experience of being in a room with people whispering to you. Did you understand that? I didn't understand a <laughs> word of that. You know, you're not going to do that on Zoom. I mean, people may be doing it on WhatsApp messages. I've absolutely no idea. But that visceral response to the class is not with me. We as leaders and managers of people, we also don't know whether our people are learning, being stretched, understanding what they're doing. We don't know whether we're resolving conflicts in our teams where people don't agree uh, or don't understand with what's happening or are bored or whatever it is. Mm. So um, people are not learning on the job like they used to. So I'm not talking about... The social side, although I think that is important, I think we want to have cultures where people feel a sense of belonging. Some of that comes from the glue of socialising together and knowing each other as people and knowing the hinterland of, of each other as people and not in a narrow Oh, they're neurodiverse, they're a lesbian, you know, income stereotype, actually to know and understand individual people and their lives and, and where they're at. We should be, we are marketers. We should be interested in people and that includes each other. But I also feel in terms of this, this point about learning, we cannot manage people remotely. We do not know where they are. They, we cannot give them feedback We cannot get their feedback on how meetings went. We cannot just be formal. And the trouble with the online world is it inevitably structured, booked, Mm time-framed, and formal in all the ways that we've just been described. So we've got to get away from units of time and this very narrow way of interacting with one another. And we've got to make the effort to have an unproductive uh, meeting or time with each other because of the yeah. potential that it may be extraordinarily productive. And I've just got too many examples all through the last year where, as I say, I've had this, and I have to tell you, it was hard. I had to give myself a talking to, Gooding, <laughs> you've got to get out there again. I It meant going on the tube again, which yeah. I have not it meant all this time in my diary traveling it meant going out when it was raining and hot my diary took two months to adjust because all my meetings were online so it took me two months to get it back face to face with the travel time in and all of that it was a big effort and I'm an extrovert but I did it because I thought I bet I bet I will be rewarded if I make this effort I cannot tell you the better quality conversations, the incidental opportunities that have arisen, which would never have happened if I hadn't got up off my arse and out the door and on the Northern Line and made the effort to go and see people. And it doesn't happen every time, but the times when it does happen, it's really worth it. Somebody tells you something that they wouldn't have told you on a Zoom meeting.
0: Yeah, it's, it, and it, it can be walking out of the room, like it's that it's that moment and they go, oh, you know, another thing like and that you you can't have that like that doesn't happen. And,
1: it's, and it's bumping into people. So even yes. me with my I'm I'm attached to a number of organisations, but I I'm lucky enough to be a member of the, the Groucho Club. That probably sounds dreadful. But anyway, it's, <laughs> me cause it's in Soho. It's central. Yeah. Um, it's a really nice place, convenient place for me to drop into. And I didn't want to be part of the Soho House thing, we know, where they're all the same everywhere you go. But I bump into people in Dean Street as I walk there or in the Groucho Club. It, you literally go back to that serendipity of bumping into somebody, and then it prompts this is you know, we know this awareness is a awareness is a funny thing. Um Having a cup of tea with someone, you don't know what it's going to lead to. So it's just about feeling connected to your peers, your colleagues, your potential clients um, and allowing the world to surprise you, which is something that I think is the great joy of being involved in in marketing, that people are so fascinating. The world is so fascinating. How does it work? What is sentiment? What is the mood? You can't get that uh, on your on your uh, computer screen, in my view. You've no. got the, but the point I'm making is this is effort. Everyone's got to make the effort. It's not easy. It's much easier just for us to stay in this default position of working from home and in isolation and not realising the harm we're doing to our own development, our own prospects, and actually our own enjoyment of our jobs.
0: Was there a catalyst that made you ha- have that kind of conversation with yourself?
1: I have suffered from periods of depression throughout my career. And so I'm very alert to my mood. Okay. I've always had very deliberate strategies to manage my own mental health. And I had come to the conclusion that I, one of the reasons I was experiencing a low mood was because of my sense of isolation. And I simultaneously, because I chair a number of organizations which had become very virtual, I observed that they were getting increasingly negative feedback from their staff around low mood, mental health, um, feeling disaffected. We knew about the great resignation Yeah. Um, But there's also a sort of a great anxiety that has flooded through. My son is a teacher. And so I had I had observed he'd come to live with me. So I observed him going back to school sooner than we all went back to work. So I was picking up from him the incredible impact that it had on the children and how hard they found it to return to school. The number of children who were still not back at school after a term, something like 10% of their oh, wow. children just sort of disappeared. And so all of this joined up in my mind where I thought, I know how I'm feeling about my own mental health. I'm seeing in a number of organisations that they've got an issue with anxiety and the mental health of their people. I've got my son working in a school telling me it took them three to six months of concerted effort to get their children back wow. And working again. So I knew that this was non trivial and it was going to take an effort. And I just thought, right, I'm going to, I'm actually going to decide this is a strategy. So what's my equivalent of getting back to school? Like my son. And, and, and if I imagine myself being like one of the students who for whatever reasons has become they're so anxious about covid they're afraid to leave the house and they're in an they're in an atmosphere in their own home where that their family for whatever reason has taken that view um so i am going to role model what i feel i want to advise uh my the, the boards and the the organizations that i'm involved in what i feel i want to advise them i want to be saying to them I think you need to get your people back together. I think you need to be going to meetings. I think you need to be insisting, actually, in a way. Um, Stop being so polite about it. It's a leadership issue to tackle and help people get over their own anxiety. And I think because I have suffered depression myself, and I know, therefore, it has helped me when my bosses and colleagues have helped lead me out of it okay. <laughs> I, by understanding my no, low mood, but encouraging me to be present. Um, that's why I felt this is a leadership issue and I'm going to role model doing it myself. And I feel it's been incredibly rewarding for me personally. And yeah. uh, and I observe the agencies that I'm advising the consultancies, those people who come in, there's almost like the cohort who come in are in so much a better place than the cohort for all their reasons of, I can't afford to commute anymore, or it doesn't suit me, or I'm a parent, or I've now got a dog. I understand all the rational arguments, but I just feel they've got to get over themselves and get back in again because they will be the ones who will benefit the
0: most. And do you think there's a there can be a balance in you? And I see it when I go into our office, and you again all the things you've talked about. You meet people, you bump into people, you have conversations, and it and it all sparks something. You know, somebody part of
1: something, don't you? You feel yes. part of something.
0: That jazz is a great way of putting it. And actually, recently. For uh, the company I work for, indeed, we were lucky enough to have a team meeting in in New York, and um, you know, a lot of my team would work in you know people in Australia or in Singapore, but we were all together. And one of the things somebody said to me um, was, "This has been amazing because I feel I'm part of something big."
1: Well, right? we've neglected the team, you see, because what the pandemic meant was we had to. What was the work that needs to be done? And was the individual okay? And team went out the window. We were just concerned with individuals. I yes. know we had teams yeah. and we did team meetings and all of that stuff. But actually, really, the team was the bit that was sacrificed because place was sacrificed. So it was all about getting the individual working and looked after and the work getting done. We now have to address and invest time back in the team. And the value of the team. And I have to say this inclination that it's all about socializing is wrong. Teams are built by working together. Not everybody wants to go to the pub or go Mm. to a pizza thing. So I observe people putting a lot of effort into social gatherings, come in and have fun, as opposed to our work is fun, And it's actually really rewarding to be working in a room with one's colleagues on strategy, uh, you know, creating ideas, creating strategies, organizing plans. And so, yes, it's nice to socialize, but it's also, it's really much more fun to be in the same room working with other people. So I think... Um, I don't uh, for a minute say I've got all the solutions, by the way. I just I I think all we can do at the moment as we try and find what is the new equilibrium. Yes. Where we get the best of both worlds, because there's a lot to be said for the flexibility, flexibility around place. Um, Thank God for that. As a working mother um, who's been working from home. For over thirty years. I find it quite funny that the whole of the world has suddenly discovered the joys of flexible working. I I discovered it 30 years ago. And that was the joy of running my consultancy was that I could I could operate out of home. Yeah. But I still went to my client offices. I still ran events in venues. I didn't just sit at home. It just meant that I had a home I had a home office. So no one needs to persuade me. The many, many millions of reasons why there should have been more flexibility for the longest time. So hurrah for that. But flexibility is not the same as a new kind of fixed, which is I don't go in on Mondays or Fridays. That's just that's fixed. That's not flexible. In my view, I think real flexibility is what does the work need? What does the team need? And for me as an individual, how can I make that work, given my circumstances, which could be caring for an older relative? People talk far too much about parenting. There are many, many reasons why we all want flexibility in our working lives. But the individual shouldn't be having the first and final say on this. The team should be able to make demands, and the work demands it. In my view, the work demands people to be in the same room and getting out of their homes.
0: Yeah. And there's something, you know, wonderful about, as you say, being in a room with people, you know, you're trying to solve a problem and I, like even had like a big wall and you're just writing stuff up and you're tearing it down and you're doing it again and you're building a building. Like, and I know there's technology that lets us do that now, but it's not the same. It's not the same. Like I, I fondly remember hours and hours in, in an agency, you know, doing that and people drawing stuff and, you know, me can't draw trying to draw stuff and it's you know it's wonderful so yeah i do agree with you and i think you're right
1: somebody's saying something clever and every you get that visceral reaction of oh oh that's really good write that down yeah you know um if we are working on our own we don't get that collaborative joy of the energy when someone has a really clever thought
0: I had never met Jan before and I had followed her online and read from and about her. So I was thrilled when she replied to my request to meet up and chat for this podcast. And I was just so appreciative. Uh, She spent so much time with me going deep on so many topics that are really important to marketers and leaders today. And so that's it for this episode of That's What I Call Marketing. Come back next week for part two of my interview with Jan Gooding, where we will delve into Jan's client-side years and explore how Jan went on to replace a 300-year-old brand in the minds of consumers. Until next week, I'm your host, Connor Byrne. Thanks for listening.